Happy New Year, listeners. I couldn't be more excited to kick off another year of reading and podcasting with all of you. The world is in a seemingly constant state of chaos, but I have a very good feeling about 2022 for SSR specifically. Thanks for joining me for the journey. Episode 175 is the first episode of the new year, but it's also the first episode of our fourth annual Manuary. Manuary has become a very special tradition around here, mostly because for the vast majority of the year, my guests are folks who identify as women. For January only, we switch things up. So let's get into it. On this episode, my wonderful guests and I dive into the world of Hugh Lofting's The Story of Dr. Doolittle, a tale you might be more familiar with because of its several film adaptations. The novel that started it all was published in 1920 and was followed up with several other books set in the same universe. Even if you've never read the books or watched the movies, you probably understand the general premise of Dr. Doolittle. He's a physician who can talk to animals. In the book, though, it's not quite that simple. You'll hear a lot more about this in the conversation that follows, but there are also undertones of socialism and colonialism in the original novel, and a lot of things had to be removed since. It's a pretty wild ride. I'm so happy to welcome Andrew and Craig from the Overdue podcast back to SSR for this New Year's kickoff episode. Overdue is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read and drops new episodes every Monday on your favorite podcast player. It's perfect for fans of SSR. Andrew is a senior technology reporter at Ars Technica and his work has also appeared in Wirecutter and the New York Times. Craig is the education director at Lantern Theatre Company, where he also works as a freelance director. Like me, they both live in Philadelphia. There are links to follow them individually on social media in the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 175. And you can follow Overdue on Instagram and Twitter at OverduePod. Thanks so much to Andrew and Craig for joining me for another thoughtful, hilarious conversation. I have the best time podcasting with these two. If you enjoy what you hear today, I would love to have you following SSR on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. You can also share your feedback with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, or by sharing a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me at SSRPod so I can see. Let's spread the word about the pod and welcome new book lovers to our community in 2022. Speaking of community, if you're looking for a book club to join this year, I have two you should consider. First, there's the SSR Book Club, also known as the SSRBC, in which amazing volunteer leaders facilitate conversations about throwback books that have previously been covered on the podcast. In January, the SSRBC is reading from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Join the fun for free at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. If you're in the market for something a little more grown up, I would suggest our Patreon book club, SWR, or Shit We Read. This month, we are reading So Many Beginnings, a Little Women remix, which was written by Bethany C. Morrow. I facilitate this book club myself, and since it's tied into Patreon, it comes along with lots of other great exclusive perks. And you get the satisfaction of knowing that you're supporting the pod in the process. Learn more and get involved at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. So much gratitude goes out to all of the SSR patrons tuning into this episode. Get a jump on your 2022 TBR list with audiobooks from Libro.fm. When you shop with Libro.fm instead of a larger company, you're supporting independent bookstores, which I think always feels great. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now, for the first time in the new year, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hoff-Kosick. 
freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Craig. Hi, Andrew. Welcome back to SSR. Hey, it's great to be here. (laughs) We didn't know which of us to go for. (laughs) It's still happening. It's still (laughs) happening. (laughs) Well, either way, this is the first episode of 2022. I'm very excited to have you back. What a great way to start the year. Oh my gosh. It's that it's 2022 already. I know. Yeah. Hopefully this sets a tone for the rest of the year and it's just like smooth sailing from here on (laughs) out. No pressure though. I mean, that's a lot of pressure to have you two set the tone like solely for 2022 after the 2020 and 2021 that we've just had. I appreciate the fact that you're ready to take that on, but I don't want to put that on you. That feels like a lot. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, we will hold you responsible as well. Okay, great. (laughs) I'm happy to take that on too. And we're talking about the story of Dr. Doolittle. And Craig and I were talking about this for a second before you jumped on, Andrew, but this is a very different book than we talked about the first time you were on the show. Your first episode, (laughs) we talked about the Bailey School Kids, Vampires Mm -hmm. Don't Wear Polka Dots. Mm -hmm. And this is a little bit different. It took us a little while to choose what book you're going to cover with me on this episode. Can you share with me why you decided to go this route? I mean, Craig is always very interested in the question of animal personhood. Like once we acknowledge that one kind of animal is a person, then how far down does it does it go? (laughs) Big questions. I I will definitely (laughs) want to talk about that on this episode. I don't know. I was also when this was on the list of options that we were or however we arrived at it. I don't remember. Like it reminded me of Peter Pan and other kind of early 20th century children's books that we've read for overdue and that's like they exist in the cultural memory through various film and cartoon adaptations but like 80 percent of them i've never read the source text until i do it for the show Mm -hmm. and there's always stuff in there that has been taken away mostly for good reason by the time it got to me in the (laughs) 80s and 90s as far as i knew Eddie Murphy had originated the role of Dr. Doolittle. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that you thought that he like originated it in general. Like it was just his idea. Like he oh, was yeah, the very no, he, first he Dr. Doolittle it. ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Robert Downey Jr. movie was just an homage to Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, well and who is Rex Harrison? Like, we, do we even need to worry about him? <laughs> I don't know who that guy is. Never heard of him. Yeah. So Rex Harrison, actually, I think. I think I did see the Rex Harrison version okay. before the Dr. Doolittle version, but that's only because I come from a family that like really digs an old school musical for better yes, or for worse. Yeah. Yes. So I do think I had seen the original movie. And then of course the Eddie Murphy adaptation was like all the rage in the nineties. I remember that being a huge deal. It was. Cause was that was post I, like clumps sort of? It like, must've been yeah. post at least stuff. Yeah. The, the first Nutty Professor, right? Yeah, and then there were there were four sequels. There was the second one which he was in, and then the the uh, actor who played his daughter in the first two movies did three more movies where she was Doctor Doolittle. Yes, yes, and I remember it being <laughs> such a big deal because it was like one of those movies that my parents were excited to take me to see because they liked Eddie Murphy, mm-hmm. and so it was something that everybody could get behind. And I was an animal lover, so I was really pumped about that. And I do think I read the book. I'm pretty sure I read the second book in the series, which is called The Voyage of Dr. Doolittle. And that one won a Newbery Medal, which, as you know, is a big deal. But the story of Dr. Doolittle is the one we're talking about today. And that's the first book in the series. It was published in 1920. I assume I read it just because it feels like something that I at some point would have stumbled upon. But I don't think I have strong memories of it. Like the movie is really what was the thing for me in the 90s. And it certainly doesn't feel like a book I recall reading in school. Like I can usually pinpoint the ones that like whether or not I read it and I was supposed to read it and didn't. I'm (laughs) fairly familiar with what a teacher recommended to us in class at some point. And this is not in my brain bank at all. Yeah, mine neither. I read one essay and I'll, I'll link to everything that I found um, in the show notes listeners. But I found one essay that talks about how in the foreword of, of this edition, which I think came out in 1988, I assume it's the same one that you read. The author of the foreword talks about how this is like arguably the best children's book since Alice in Wonderland, which I think is, you know, certainly up for debate. 
Mm-hmm. But um, the the author of this essay then goes on to talk about like, well, why if the story of Dr. Doolittle is such a classic of children's literature, why do we forget it? Like, why does it sort of come in second to the movies? Why have the movies superseded it? And the essay like didn't really have an answer, which I thought was interesting. Like it poses <laughs> this question about why the story of Dr. Doolittle has not kind of maintained its status as a number one children's book uh, for all these years. Do you have any thoughts about this? Like, why do you think the movies have become better known and uh, sort of just more mainstream than the source material? <laughs> I have what a take, you Andrew, but you yeah, go no, first. I saw, no, you had take face. So you yeah, should. Yeah, I had a take. Yeah, See, this it. is what happens when you have a co-host. I need to have a co-host so that I know take face. <laughs> <laughs> do you want my take, Andrew? And oh, now? yes. Give me your take. Okay. Yeah, please. So the book went out or some of the books went out of print in the mid 20th century. Yes. Mm-hmm. Kind of like in the run-up, I guess, to the Rex Harrison movie and the musical and stuff. But like, there's a lot of stuff in the first two books in particular that has since been excised since the 80s. Like really racially insensitive stuff. There's a similar thing with Pippi Longstocking, which we have read for our show as well. I'm sure you've talked about if you have. I don't remember if you've covered Pippi. We haven't gotten there yet, but I would like to. And there's similar like... In the late 20th century, they start doing reprints and they're like, wow, there's some rough stuff here. Let's just get rid of it <laughs> so that we can preserve this character that people like. I think the the basic premise of dude who talks to animals is really exciting to a wide variety of people. Mm-hmm. And this book has like some interesting economic poverty undertones that I do not have any recollection of from any adaptation of Dr. Doolittle. No, I don't think there's a scene where Eddie Murphy is like, man, wouldn't it be great if we just got rid of money? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I really want to talk about everything that's an excise, mm-hmm. but you know, we'll tack up next to Craig's interest in talking about animal personhood. My interest in talking about like the, the presence of money in this book, yeah, but definitely. look, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll add that to our list for later. Part of my take is that like that did not stick to the character at all. Like mm-hmm. at least in the modern conception of it, that all of the economic pressures that he's under and whatever the professional things he's concerned about, like it's just due to talks to animals in the same way that Pippi Longstocking is like superhuman child, <laughs> amazing, like girl who can do anything. I mean, I can, I can, I can imagine some reasons why Doctor Doolittle's like socialist impulses might have been <laughs> removed yeah. from from subsequent adaptations. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, and so then, then there's like kind of a memory hole that prevents it from enduring. It like maybe skips a generation or something, and so it doesn't wind up with the same cultural footprint. And well, what and- does last is like shallower. I maybe I don't know. And, and some adaptations, I think, so we're, we're talking about like the Eddie Murphy stuff and all the others, like some of those, I think, ele- elevate the source material again, like mm. we'll get a reissue of the books with Eddie Murphy on them to like get people to <laughs> go into the Walden books and buy them. I don't recall like a big like effort on the part of the estate of Hugh Lofting, yeah. like trying to get these books back out again to capitalize on uh, adaptations that came out later. It's not like the C.S. Lewis or the Tolkien stuff that was happening yeah, right. when those movies were happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't ever remember around the time of the Eddie Murphy adaptation feeling that people wanted me to read this book. I don't ever remember going to like a scholastic book fair and there being like a huge push for Dr. Doolittle. I think it was just a book that I found because I found a lot of books when I was a kid and when I was going to the library. So I think I think that all of those points are good ones. It feels like maybe it skipped a generation or two yeah, because it yeah. went out of print and so it wasn't a book that a particular generation of parents were then passing along to their kids because they never got to read it. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was the thing I wanted to, to mention is like all the books that I read that came out like before my time. So Craig, you mentioned Narnia, like the Tolkien stuff, those were passed to me by my mom. Like, and I, that she's who I got like the Mrs. Piggle Wiggle books from there was some weird series about a mushroom planet that I don't, I don't, I've never ever run into anybody else who's read them, but there's a ton of them and they're about going to a mushroom planet and meeting aliens. (laughs) I got that from my mom too. But like if if there, yeah, if there was a break, if there was a generation that did get them, then that really limits the amount of passing down that's happening. And yeah, that might be 
that might be all it is. Yeah, I, I just think people know the movie and not the book so much. But I did find some interesting information about the origin story of the novel. Did you come across any of this in your own research? Um, I come across a bit about where he he had been writing like letters to his kids from the trenches in in Europe in World War One. That's the main like point of genesis that I discovered. Yeah. Yeah. So he was writing letters from what seems to have been like the literal trenches to his children, yes. uh, which you know just kind of adds to this like of all the things you could be doing from the trenches. I appreciate that you're trying to tell stories to your children, but uh, I. I don't know, that just sounds like an unnecessary task when you have a lot of other things on your mind. <laughs> I think he mentioned like things in the trenches were either too horrifying yes. or too boring to tell his kids. And so this is this is this is a way to stay in communication with them without like destroying their young minds with yeah, the I love sure how, war. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love how he's like, they won't be into this, so I'm just gonna make up some other stuff. <laughs> Um, but I did find this one line in a piece from the New York Times that was published in 2020 in honor of the book's 100th anniversary, written by uh, a writer who just has kind of come back into the world of Dr. Doolittle, having read it to some students via Zoom, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But the piece says of Hugh Lofting, he had observed, as he wrote many years later, that the animals serving alongside the soldiers had, like them, become, quote, fatalists trudging into the same hail of artillery fire. But when a horse was wounded, it wasn't sent to the dispensary. It was dispatched with a bullet. This was cruel. Lofting imagined that we would spare animals if only we could see inside them as we can see inside our fellow humans. And so he wrote letters home about talking animals. These letters formed the basis of the story of Dr. Doolittle. And the essay goes on to talk about how in the book, the animals get to be heroes just as much as the doctor himself. And sort of like after seeing what he saw while he was in the trenches and saw these animals being injured, even as they were like performing these heroic feats alongside humans who were then tended to in a different way, he wanted to kind of flip the script and put the animals in a different light and let them be just as important as the humans. I feel like that kind of leads to Craig's interest in uh, <laughs> in how animals are embodied as humans in a book like this. It's so fascinating. Yeah, he's like this wonderful... Well, like he's got this streak of animal rights and poured it into his fiction. And he's like a pacifist. He comes out of World War I as this incredible pacifist and then writes all this stuff about, you know, he writes that big long poem later in his career about yeah. the horrors of World War II. He wrote what one of the books that was published posthumously. Um, Dr. Doolittle and the Secret Lake. I Yeah, I wondered if you were going to bring this one because it sounds pretty dark. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's about the Great Flood, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. this is from the Wikipedia article. The book starts with the doctor giving up his dream of lengthening human life with discoveries he made on the moon. Question mark. Okay, did not. All right. Must have happened <laughs> in another book. That's yeah. yeah. Uh, it's called, it's something like Dr. Doolittle goes to the moon or something like that. That would, that would track, yeah. Did he go but to then, a mushroom planet by any chance? <laughs> Maybe there's mushrooms on the moon. <laughs> and he goes to hang out with his friend Mudface the Giant Turtle who tells him about living through the Great Flood and the horrors that all the animals would have experienced uh, were they there. And he's just like, yeah. He's very invested in what these animals can and can't do. Most of them can do almost anything, and they have fully formed relationships with each other. My biggest question coming out of this read is, like, are fish people, and how do we reconcile eating animal flesh in this universe? Mm -hmm. Those are my two big questions that I was pondering during the read the easy answer to one of your questions then we can and we can tackle the other one is that when he takes in the crocodile the crocodile does promise not to eat the fish in his pond as a condition of him staying with dr doolittle so i True. do think the fish must be people okay. enough that all the people living a doctor all the animals living at dr doolittle's house are not with the crocodile to eat them because he does he does talk to sharks yeah. Yes. So, and sharks, I think, for all intents and purposes, are fish or yeah. fish like. My high school biology teacher is somewhere screaming, "No, it's the wrong <laughs> genus or king." I don't know the cat. The category is probably wrong, but for all intents and purposes, I think we can say like sharks 
are fish-ish. So yeah, I mean, I think Dr. Doolittle would probably consider fish people. I do wonder if we were to read the whole series, which I don't plan to, how many other animals we would encounter and if we would feel like it cast a wider net, no pun intended, with respect to fish, Mm -hmm. as far as like just how many animals are included in Dr. Doolittle's understanding of human like species <laughs> like do we draw the line at bugs you know hmm. we ha- we don't run into any bugs in this book that's yeah. what i'm saying interesting hmm. like because and then the reason i brought up fish because i flagged it when they're getting ready to go to africa i'm sure we'll talk about other parts of the plot along the way but yeah. dr Doolittle is going to go to africa to solve a monkey disease epidemic and they need to get food for their journey and they talk about like not being able to get enough fish from mm. the grocer or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. presumably to eat they also talk about being on the boat like eating more fish that the birds caught so that they could make the beef last longer and the beef is so they've got beef though too yes <laughs> yeah i mean i don't think that dr doolittle's passion for an interest in animals has awoken in him any strong passion for vegetarianism no it doesn't seem like it <laughs> that doesn't really seem to be part of his perspective on his relationships with animals so there are there are limits he talks to them yes. but if he has to eat them or if he wants to eat them he will i mean my my two-year-old there, there is a disconnect I think in his mind still between chicken, the part of his like animal oh. puzzle that he can identify oh. and chicken, like the nuggets that he enjoys so much. The alienation effect. Yeah. And so it's huh. possible that, you know, the, the fish you buy from the grocery store and your friend like Stuart, the fish who lives <laughs> in your pond at your house, they're not Stuart. the same. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to be two years old and to be able to compartmentalize things that way, or to be Mm -hmm. Dr. Doolittle as an adult (laughs) man, and to be able to compartmentalize those things. I wonder if there, and I didn't come across any of this in my research, but this seems like the kind of book that would have inspired some sort of a response from vegan organizations or vegetarian groups or animal rights groups, because I do feel like there's a part of it that feels very much obviously like pro animals, like Mm -hmm. Dr. Doolittle is very invested in the safety and the future of his animal friends. But as, as you're bringing up, there are also some discrepancies and some inconsistencies in the way he relates to the natural world around him. I also think that like we don't get a so in like the Lion King, all the animals can talk to each other. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. But at least Mufasa I think there is like a part where like Mufasa lays it out like some of the animals eat the other animals. Like we're all in this great circle of life together. Like there's a natural order for better and for worse, I suppose. There's a line when Dr. Doolittle is talking to the lions trying to get the lions to help him run a hospital for the monkeys. That sentence <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> and and the lions like I hate these monkeys. I wouldn't even eat them. Yeah. Which implies that he has thought about it, but these monkeys are sick, so he won't. I mean, I'm just I'm going to bring up to you real fast that it is awful convenient that this lion in The Lion King has constructed a worldview that excuses the <laughs> behavior that he wants to participate in. So It's not told from Timon and Pumbaa's perspective. You're right. That's fair. Right. Whose story is it? It's yeah. not Timon and Pumbaa's story. Like, who, who's That's mind Lion King in? one and a half, I think. Yes. Timon You're right. Yeah. I have not seen it. I would like to. While we're talking about this, I am curious. So this is a this is a conversation I've had with several people about like animated movies in which animals talk. Some people can't even tolerate them. I actually know a few people who are close to me who like just even as kids could not like be comfortable with the idea of like watching animals talk even in animated movies do either of you come down on one side of that like i'm fine with it it doesn't bother me but while we're talking about this conversation with dr doolittle do you have any like red flags coming up for you on that subject (laughs) i am not a fan of the one and i don't i think these days a talking animal in a movie would be mostly like cg it would be like all cg and but i don't like the sort of in between where the animals like they're shooting footage of a real animal, but then they've made it look like the animal's mouth is moving to say the human words. That has always creeped me out a bit. Okay. Yep. Don't love it. Those are the worst. My preferred mode of in film is uh, Homeward Bound, Ugh. which is like the animal. It's just footage of animals doing cool stuff. 
and then you just get a, vo- a vocal track over it. It's very artful. It's very effective. <laughs> yeah, but now I'm going to get like emotional thinking about homework. Yeah, down, that's so true. I think we should um, move on. But I do, I do appreciate <laughs> that. I agree with you. But if I think about Shadow for too long, yeah, like, I know it's not going to be a good rest of the day. Just think about when Chance slams his boy's head into the car door, which is <laughs> the funniest that, houses that kid. frame in that movie. It's so that kid's <laughs> fine. Don't worry about it. When I was a kid, I used to have to fast forward through the porcupine scene. Like every time <laughs> I would have, I was like, it's very upsetting. I would scream for my mom because of course I like, didn't know how to operate the VCR yet. I had to like <laughs> yell for my mom to come and like fast forward through that scene every single time for years. In written fiction, I like. I think one of the ones I've read for our show that I, that has stuck with me is Watership Down, mm-hmm. just because, like, the animals have religion and generations of culture and their own language, and it just feels really rich and begs begs a lot of fun questions, but seems to have solved some of the easier ones. So it's more fun for me when there's like a. I don't know. I've I really enjoyed the part in this book where Chi Chi the monkey is telling them like thousand year old oral histories about cavemen that he learned from his monkey ancestors. Like mm-hmm. I'm into that. Yeah, that was cool. I would say like before we move away from the subject of just like weird anthropomorphism, I, I will say like the weirdest moment of this book for me. And we kind of got there a little bit with the conversation about the lion. The lion is married. Yeah. If you picked up on that. But (laughs) the lion has a wife. And they're having like a very sort of relatable for most people who are in long-term serious relationships, like marital dispute Uh in this book. And it made me wonder like if the lion is allowed to have a sustained romantic relationship and is a- apparently like legally married in some form or fashion. <laughs> Why are none of the other animals in those kinds of relationships? Is it because he's the king of the jungle? I mean, I know mm. it like works plot wise, of course, and I get that. Like I understand, but that was weird to me that it was, it was the author made such a point that like the lion is a husband and the lion has a wife. And so we're fitting the king of the jungle into these very, like traditional family structures. It was weird to me. And he goes, the lion even goes to Dr. Doolittle and is like, my kid, I don't think, I think he's fine, but the wife, the wife thinks thinks that he's, that he's got some kind of illness. So I guess I'll help you with your monkey hospital. It was weird. (laughs) Here's what I love about that, Allie. It's like earlier in the book, when Doolittle is learning the languages of the animals from his parrot, Polynesia and the parrot is like listen sometimes when dogs talk they don't like say words it's because of the way that they look or the the way that their tail wags or something which I really liked because it like connotes this idea that um, there's a lot of nonverbal language that maybe Doolittle is getting from these animals it's not just that he can understand the noises they make Along with that, though, it implies that, like, different animals have different cultures mm-hmm. with their own. So, like, wouldn't a lion, like, I don't know if, if Lion King is be believed, there's, like, multiple wives that the lion probably has. Mm-hmm. What about the animals that have different mates every year? We don't get into this stuff, yeah. Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, I just thought it was, it was like Hugh Lofton got to this lion moment and he was like, oh crap, the only way that this can work <laughs> is if the lion is in a fight with his wife and it has to be his wife. And he's like, oh man, like I can't go back depict, and you don't work want to this out. These lions the having species. kids out of wedlock. Like, what kind of lesson does that teach? Impressionable <laughs> you. And he's sending, the he's sending these letters home from the trench with these stories that ultimately became this book. So you know, his wife was probably like, I'm not going to read this one. This one, I don't, I don't <laughs> like this. How the wife is portrayed in this lion passage. She was like, next time you're asked to help set up a monkey hospital, <laughs> maybe you should. Think about things a little bit differently, Hugh. <laughs> Have you seen pictures of 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 Hugh Lofting? He looks exactly like a guy named Hugh to me. Yeah, the oh, yeah. the really? platonic okay. ideal of Hugh of the name Hugh is what Hugh Lofting looks like. Yeah, 
Okay, listeners, I'm going to have to put up a photo and maybe we'll have mm. to vote just to like make sure that I, this is what everybody thinks of when they think of the <laughs> you. Know, like, if I kind of squint a little bit, like, it's not, it's within the realm of a Hugh Grant. Mm -hmm. That's you what know? I'm saying. I'm looking yeah. at that. It might be related. Just Oh. <laughs> just a couple of you. Yeah, he looks yeah. like a Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> so all right we we've discussed some of the bigger thornier sort of animal anthropomorphism anth the bigger some of the issues that we've had with this book. <laughs> but do we want to talk about do we want to talk about the the plot do we want to talk at all about a little bit more about lofting like his his deal is mostly that he wrote the do the dr doolittle books yeah his do lofting's deal yeah that's his deal so do you want to talk about like how we feel about Dr. Doolittle at the beginning of the book when we're learning about his career, his life in Puddleby? <laughs> I was surprised. I, I guess I was a little surprised that he had to learn how to like he had to learn the animal language. I, I thought I it was a know, superpower. Yeah. yeah. Like I didn't know that anyone could learn to talk to animals if they put the work in. And that's apparently how it is. Andrew, you could do that. I know, right? And in. I just haven't because I'm lazy and I don't love animals enough. But <laughs> and when the when the animals talk about him throughout the book, all of them are like, "This is the one human who decided to learn our languages. We must right do trade with him. We must uh, seek out his services. We must worship him as a god." <laughs> Like the animals are on board. the The eagles who are like very serious are like, "We will do this for yes. you, John Doolittle." Mm -hmm. Like, but yeah, I was, I was also, I came into this expecting it to have been like an X Man power that he had. Or I would have liked to spend a little bit more time, like watching him learn. It was very fast. <laughs> it was very abrupt. It was like all of a sudden he talked to he talked to Polynesia. She explained to him that. As you mentioned earlier, it's not always verbal. There are other things that you can do to learn how to communicate with animals. And that was kind of it. He just knew how to talk to animals. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting about the beginning of the book was his sister, uh -huh. Sarah, <laughs> who lives with him. And of course, fits into this like gross, you know, old school depiction of, of at one point, what was called a spinster, yep. like a spinster sister who lives with him and like keeps his house and make sure that everything's running smoothly with his business. And I loved that as things are really starting to become frustrating for her because he's now moved an alligator into the house. He's losing all of his business. He has no money. There's animals everywhere. She threatens to leave and get married. Like that's her, her big threat is like, you know what? I'm just going to leave here and get married if you can't pull this together. It, it was a big threat. And she somehow pulled it off very yes. quickly. Like, I don't know if she was dating somebody or if she just was like, I'm going to leave and just find somebody to marry me. But she was not messing around. I'm going to go marry someone who hates animals. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I thought she was kind of an interesting, like, side character that I just found amusing. Although, of course, I hate this old portrayal of, like, an unmarried yeah, woman right. who is probably, like, she's probably in her yeah. like, she's <laughs> And it doesn't matter, of course. But I do think that, like, in these, like, early 20th century works, there's this idea of any any woman who's, like, maybe late 20s or older who has to live with another family member because she's not married that's of course something that like i bristle at in 2021 2022 and i think he was supposed to be setting them in the in the early 19th so even he is like this is an interesting trope I'm i wonder if he's just like this is what it was like here's a funny thing that i'll put in here like not recognizing that it is still an issue <laughs> i mean you know? yeah i yeah. don't know how much he was commenting on it like rolled no, 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 no books where like spencer ants are getting rolled over by giant peaches and it's exactly the faith that they deserve because they were such harpy shrews so yeah that's a cool part in that <laughs> so book. i think this yeah. is still an active stereotype that's, yep. he's just uh -huh. like casually trafficking <laughs> it's also like convenient yes. because he's like oh well now i don't have anybody to take care of my house so what am i yeah, gonna that's do a point. that's a good point <laughs> Which again, I don't appreciate. I bristle at it, and that's going to be my word the about this. I'm hero bristling. for for me in the early part of the book is so so. Doctor Doolittle is a, a people doctor, yes, who gets more and more pets until the people stop coming around. Except for this guy, the cats, the cats meat man. Ah, uh, the cats meat man who who keeps coming. Uh, once he gets sick once a year and needs one bottle of medicine. <laughs> so one year while he's in for his medicine, he suggests to Doctor Doolittle, maybe you become an animal doctor. 
and maybe you know you get all these old ladies who have these cats come in you look at their cats and like maybe since i'm the cat's meat man i just like lightly poison the cats to like drum up some business for you and dr Doolittle is like i'm gonna stop you right there <laughs> i don't think we need to poison the cats <laughs> lightly poison them <laughs> how about you be a vet but you deal me in i want yeah. to be in I just get a finder's fee. You're right. That is a it's a a bold character yeah. choice, especially in a children's book. Um, I do feel like that would probably go right over the heads of most yeah. kid readers. So I'm like, why why put it in? It just feels dark to adults who might be reading it to their children. And then, like you were you were saying, Allie, like he learns to talk from Polly Polynesia, excuse me, the parrot. And then on the next page, he's putting horses. He's putting glasses on a horse, like. <laughs> Yeah, I loved that. I loved the animals wearing glasses. It became a trend. Suddenly there are glasses on animals everywhere. And the 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 word of Dr. Doolittle spreads around the the animal global social media very quickly. Yeah. The network. Twilight yeah. Mark, probably. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows. And so Chi Chi, his pet monkey, comes to him and basically explains that there's this terrible monkey illness in Africa. And the monkeys in Africa know about Dr. Doolittle and they think that he is the only one in the world who can save them. So Dr. Doolittle is like, okay, great. I'm practically bankrupt anyway. My sister has left. So I'm just going to go to Africa and save the monkeys. Doesn't he say it would be great to go to Africa where I wouldn't have to have any money anyway? Yeah, he's getting he he is getting hassled a lot by by people trying to charge him money for stuff. It's not specified where in Africa he's right. going. It's just a place that he can go. Right, just Africa, you know? which I do think is unfortunately like this idea of just sort of the monolith of uh -huh. Africa is very yep. reflective of. I think I would say that's reflective of like the way that in a majority white community and school and as an elementary schooler like i do feel like that's how people talked about africa even in the 90s which yeah. is terrible and luckily now in 2021 2022 we understand that there are many many countries in africa and many different cultures but i think growing up in a white community and not necessarily having the best like global education books like this fed into this idea of africa as just like a single yeah. place for sure well, and it's it's frustrating too because like he was uh Lofting was a civil engineer who built railroads in West Africa, like probably knew more detail than he chose to put in that could have like not just glossed over, you know, a whole continent worth of people. But well, and and some of the details that he did put in have been removed from the yes. edition that we read because they include like a skin whitening subplot and uh it's, it's, yeah it's like one where he turns the prince into a white a white man which yeah. sounds awesome yep yeah let's talk about africa <laughs> <laughs> um let's see let's talk about what happens when he gets to africa so he yes. gets shipwrecked he seems to lack a lot of common sense like he he gets on the ship to africa very quickly it seems like they get on the boat and they realize they don't have any food they don't have any supplies and they literally just like run into africa and I actually think he says, like, oh, we seem to be shipwrecked on Africa. I think that's <laughs> from the book. Again, referring to this, like, monolith that is Africa. And so they get off the ship in Africa. And they're going to find the monkeys that Dr. Doolittle is going to take care of. And they find themselves in the kingdom of, and I, I want to make sure that I pronounce this, like, as close to correctly as possible. Because it's mm -hmm. a weird word. Jilliginki is, do we think that's correct? Yeah, Jolly Ginky is, is, yeah, where my head went. Jolly Ginky. And so they they discover that they are very much not welcome in Jolly Ginky. The king of Jolly Ginky says, you may not travel through my lands. Many years ago, a man came to these shores and I was very kind to him. But after he had dug holes in the ground to get the gold and killed all the elephants to get their ivory tusks, he went away secretly in his ship without so much as saying thank you. Never again shall such a man travel through the lands of Jalaginki. And in this edition, it's not noted explicitly that the king of Jalaginki is black. But from my research, it seems very clear that in earlier editions of the book, the king is described that way, but using racial slurs that have since been removed. It seems as though there were just a lot of descriptions of the king of Jalaginki and his family in the original edition. And some illustrations, too. I think. And some illustrations that sounds like they were just like horrific caricatures of these people. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that language has 
has since been taken out, uh, I believe specifically for the 1988 edition. And then you also mentioned, Andrew, the the skin bleaching plot, yeah, um, yeah. which when I discovered that in my research, I was like, oh, ugh. oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. Here we go. It, it's very Peter Panish in nature. I to call back to that. The Dover edition that I read, and Craig, you might've read this one too. I then got this link from you is like that the plot with Prince Bumpo is gone, but it does still mention skin color in a few places. Like the slurs are gone, but like the king of Jolly Ginky is specifically saying to Doolittle in my edition, many years ago, a white man came to these shores. I was very to him. Uh, Never again, never again shall a white man travel through the lands of Jolly Ginky. So. And there are a couple times where the animals refer to Dr. Doodle as a great white man, which is. Oh, yeah. I didn't have that in my nope. edition. Um, yeah. Which like it's an interesting in between because it does yeah. excise the slurs, which is great, but it doesn't totally paper over the like the racial dynamics that would be right. at play. Like it doesn't it doesn't dive all the way into them because it's a kid's book from 100 years ago. <laughs> but, but yeah. And we're skipping ahead plot wise, but the the prince bumpo thing that we're talking about like i had to flip back and forth through the pages in my edition to figure out how they got a second boat Mm -hmm. because when they finally do end up leaving the continent after they deal with the monkeys which we'll talk about they all of a sudden just have another boat that they found they're like oh great a boat yeah (laughs) and in the version in the original uh there's what we're talking about which is like the prince of this kingdom wants to go like be with sleeping beauty but he needs to be a white man to do it and it's really rough and in exchange for that he gives them a boat and so editors since have said that's bad let's get rid of it but no one went in and like explained where the boat came from i was just really confused and then didn't find out that that's what was missing until doing research after my read so yeah 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 they just took it out and i think the other thing that's worth noting is that Despite the fact that those racial slurs and this like horrible plot point that we're discussing have been taken out, there is still this sense that like the King of Jalaginki is like the villain in this mm-hmm. situation yeah. Yeah. and that yeah. Dr. Doolittle and the animals are like literally running from him. He imprisons them twice. They're trying to hide from him when like the fact is that the King of Jalaginki has very good reason to not <laughs> want a man like Dr. Doolittle in his land, in his country. And I think, of course, like it, in 2021, 2022, I can look at this and be like, well, no, Dr. Doolittle and his band of animal pals are clearly the interlopers here. And the King of Jalgiki has every right to like be upset that they're there and to ask them to leave. And just, I would say, even with the absence of the like slurs and maybe some of the more pointed language about the King of Jalgiki, the tone still points to the fact and like kind of leads readers, I think, in the direction of feeling as though the King of Jal Ginky is in the wrong when like it's clear to me that like Dr. Doolittle is the one who shouldn't be there. There was a New York Times article in 88 that talked about a lot of these changes that also cites a New York librarian, Isabel Sewell, who is writing in 1968 who said, uh, the real Dr. Doolittle is in essence the personification of the great white father nobly bearing the white man's burden and that his creator was a white racist and chauvinist guilty of almost every every prejudice known to modern white Western man. Editing out a few racial epithets will not make the books less chauvinistic. Mm. And there is certainly like, even as we've been talking about, even in the like marital dynamics between the king and queen in Jalaginki and the lions and the treatment of his sister. Yeah. And just the way he moves into another part of the world as the only person who can do this like magical thing. Yeah, it's it's a weird book. Yeah, but like the, the and that New York Times piece is we can make sure you have a, a link, Ali, for your show notes if you don't yeah. if you haven't found this one already. But like okay. it is interesting because after it brings up these quotes and these issues, it the article itself goes on to say like but this isn't, you know, this isn't what people remember. People don't remember Dr. Doolittle yes, being some right. horrible racist. Like and it goes down to what we were saying before. People don't remember. Like, and I think that is like it, it is good to discuss these issues as, as they come up. But I feel like when when people get upset about like a, like Dr. Seuss stuff like they did earlier mm. in, in 2021 or, or when they get upset about like works that they enjoyed as children being like revisited and revised like that. I think there is like a, 
there's a defensiveness that that comes up because they think oh the you know these books are being changed i enjoyed these books therefore like tacitly you are saying that i'm racist or something and and like yeah yeah i i want those people to be able to engage in the the work of like reevaluating like things that they've been taught or, or things that they read and like you know interfacing with them critically but i do think it's it's just it's it's not straightforward to to talk about this stuff all like you you i find myself like part of myself being sort of sympathetic like yes you enjoyed this and yes there's still like value there probably for for like future generations of kids you just have to like move one step beyond that and start like do you know what i mean i feel like i'm yeah <laughs> i feel like i'm spinning my wheels but like no well for me the flip side is the flip side is like one of the reasons I wanted to pull up that quote is just that people have been pointing, like looking at this book and being like, that's messed up for a while. Like it's not part of the reevaluation is also looking back and trying to find the folks who, when the book came out or a generation removed, were like, I don't know about this Africa stuff. Yeah. But just not to say that it, again, this is also a character we've talked a lot about having like a cultural imprint that is pretty far removed from this source text um such that most of us came in not really even having an idea of what might be in this book so that can be a tool in your toolbox for going back and reading a story like this anyway if you're looking for like what might be interesting like what about like having feelings for other creatures on this planet can i take from this book and what do i want to leave behind and not take with me after i read it or whatever yeah i was going to say something similar just the extent to which sort of the idea of Dr. Doolittle has now been removed from the source material. And as a book person, I'm often like skeptical about adaptations and I don't always feel like they move the cultural imprint of a book in a good direction, just because I, I always find like that the source material is so much closer to my heart. But in this case, you have to wonder if people, you know, who have the powers that be who are doing these adaptations, like find the heart of this story, which is, a man who loves animals and cares for animals and like does have some interest in preserving nature and gets to do this like really fantastical thing of communicating with animals, which is a thing that I think a lot of kids dream of doing and figures out how to remove that from the racist yeah, yeah, yeah. history that is embedded yeah. in the source material, yeah. taking an additional step and casting Eddie Murphy as Dr. <laughs> Doolittle. You know, I think that, that that's worth mentioning. It's something that came up in my research. I think it was in an essay written by a librarian who talks about the fact that like, way to go and really like trying to separate Dr. Doolittle as an idea from its roots by like giving the character to Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Some of the specifically bad stuff here. Yeah. Yeah. So I enjoyed that. And, but then at the same time, like you, you lose a lot of that, the, the ruminations on like the nature of, of money and how it's, uh, it just sucks to have yeah. to worry about money. <laughs> so like th that comes up, in the plot because he's in Africa, they deal with the kingdom of Jalgenki, he goes to the monkeys and just starts giving them a vaccine that he made <laughs> on the spot. Yeah, let's so take a pause for the vaccination situation <laughs> yep. because I we gotta talk about money. And honestly, I will say like I feel like the second half, final third of this book is like much less interesting than the first part. Yeah. Um so I think there will be there will be much less to talk about there. But we have vaccinations in Africa. Yeah. Where all the monkeys are vaccinated. Nobody's fighting back. Everybody's like, yes, please, I will gladly take this vaccination. As a well monkey, please give me this vaccine. <laughs> uh the lion says it's okay. And then Jeez, didn't know this book was gonna get so political. Very, you know what I mean? Like very political. He really is a man of our time. So he is just he whipped up this vaccination. I didn't know that he was an infectious disease specialist, in addition yeah. to being like a new veterinarian. That's the other thing. Like <laughs> he was tending to humans for most of his career, and now he decided that he's gonna work with animals and he knows how to make vaccines for them. So that yeah. happens. That's my yeah, that that's something that kind of wowed me over and over is like the, the issue is not that we don't have monkey vaccines or horse glasses. The issue is that nobody can talk to the animals to figure out what it is that they that they think they need. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's vaccinations happening in Africa. And then we also get a lot of this conversation about money, particularly when Chi Chi the monkey announces that Dr. Doodle has to leave 
The other monkeys would really like him to stay, but Chi-Chi says to them, my friends, I am afraid it is useless to ask the doctor to stay. He owes money in Puddleby, <laughs> which is so like <laughs> weird. Um, and he says he must go back and pay it. The loan sharks are going to come yeah. and raise our jungle to find Dr. Doolittle. Right. We have, there's a lot of messages on our voicemail right now uh, from collectors. <laughs> Then Chi-Chi told them that in their country, you could get nothing without money. You could do nothing without money. That it was almost impossible to live without money. This is all coming from one monkey to all other monkeys. This is really a first contact story between man and the animal kingdom. Yeah. Where he is like, wow, all of you can talk and have thoughts and feelings and culture. And they're like, you all created money? That seems like a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, this seems weird. Probably, probably come back to this monkey kingdom in like a hundred years and see capitalist systems taking oh, shape. Oh no, like it's Dr. like Doolittle's that. Contaminated it's that the monkey Tim Burton movie. Planet of the Apes movie or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but the monkey's solution to this, based on Chi Chi's suggestion, is to give him a rare animal called a push me pull you. Yes. Um, which Chi Chi suggests to them because they're like, oh, how do we get him to stay? Like, how are we going to make him happy? He's given us all these vaccines. We're so grateful. Science is great. And Chi Chi says, <laughs> if you want to please him, give him an animal. You may be sure he will be kind to it. Give him some rare animal they have not got in the menagerie. So they come up with this push me, pull you. It's like a cross between like an ox and a unicorn. It has two heads. Seems pretty cool. It's a cat, uh, it's a cat dog. It has a head yeah, on either hand. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. questions. So many questions. Uh, but, I mean, Dr. Doolittle doesn't have any. He's just it's like, I will take this, this push-me-pull-you. Although he does have some, like, moral misgivings about, like, what he's going to do with the push-me-pull-you when he arrives back to Puddleby. Because the implication from the monkeys is, like, you can use this push-me-pull-you to make money. Monkeys got there real fast. Like, Chi-Chi <laughs> Chi understands this in his time as an organ monkey. Yes, because uh, that's I mean, what he was doing. Animals kind of have to talk him into making money in the yeah. first place. Like, remember when we didn't have any food or anything? Like, I know money is a hassle, and we agree with you that money is a hassle. <laughs> but wouldn't it be nicer to have it than not to have it? Yeah, but he doesn't want to take advantage of the push me pull you. So he basically is like, I'm, I'm going to think about this. Like, there's going to be a few other adventures. We're going to have a run in with some pirates. By the time we get back to Puddleby, I'll have handled these pirates. We'll have saved a boy and his uncle. I'll take that time to work out how I feel about capitalizing on the push me pull you. Yeah. And as I mentioned, like, I do think that the second half of the book is like a little bit sleepier. There is a run in with pirates that does feel like shockingly dry and like uninteresting to me. The part in the pirates beat that I liked in the sense that it gave me a lot to think about was when they beat the pirates and the pirates are all floating in the water mm. and the sharks are going to maybe eat them. Yes. And Dr. Doolittle's like, hey, sharks, can you do me a solid and just like keep the threat level up on these pirates? And he says to the pirates, you basically have to give up your life of piracy. I am the great and powerful Doolittle. I will tell these sharks to eat you if you ever leave this island and cease being birdseed farmers because yeah. your, your body count is too high as pirates. You have to give like the... <laughs> This is the they won't even let him be like legitimate sailors. Like nope. you have to be birds yeah. farmers, or I will tell the sharks to eat. They have you. to give back. I have ways of getting work. And th them. this like, is the Dr. Doolittle oh, no. who could like literally change the course of history because every animal animal he, army, yeah. every animal he meets is like on his side. He could like change the world if he wanted to, but no, he's just gonna go home and make some money off a two-headed ox. Yeah, I mean, the notion that he is able to, like, negotiate with the sharks and that he, of course, makes this, like, moral choice to let the pirates live when it would have been very easy for him to just sick the sharks on the pirates. <laughs> I do think, like, we're meant to read that as an endorsement of his character. Sure. And the fact that, like, you know, he is a good guy and he doesn't want to just go around killing pirates, even if they're awful. But I agree, like, that was sort of an interesting element. I also thought that the interaction with the rats was kind of cool. Like the yeah. rats were the ones yeah, that was who like cool. warned Dr. Doolittle of the trouble that was coming. And then of course there's this other plot point where there's a boy locked in the pirate ship that Dr. Doolittle and the animals move into and he's crying. And we find out that it's because his uncle is missing um, at the hands of the pirates. 
And as a dog lover, I really loved the dog gets to be the hero in this moment. Uh, (laughs) The dog is like frustrated that the birds are trying to find the uncle and the porpoises are trying to find the uncle. Like every other animal seems to be tapped first to locate this boy's uncle. And I loved the like tension between Jip the dog and the other birds when the dog is like, you guys don't know what you're doing. Like this is not an efficient way to find a human. If you would just let me steer the boat with my nose we would get this done much faster. And I was reading this like as I was watching my own dog like stick his nose up in the air and like truly like who knows what he smells. Um, (laughs) But I was like, you could be a hero. Like you could find the uncle and the dog's ability to ultimately locate the uncle makes both the dog and Dr. Doolittle a hero because when they return to the boy's hometown, the mayor gifts Dr. Doolittle a diamond watch, which is like very generous, and the dog a solid gold collar. Um, And this, of course, will be the answer to their financial worries. Yeah. Where there's a will and a dog with a good nose, there is a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Always. Yeah. I didn't like the the boy and his uncle are ultimately pretty forgettable. Like that's the part where it feels like this is a little this is a story that he wrote about this cool dog. And then mm-hmm. it happened to be in the larger book that he put together. Yeah. And the rest of it is just like, he gets home and he pays back all of his creditors and they have enough money to live on and everything's great. Yep. For Dr. Doolittle yeah. yep. and his animal pal. My favorite line at the end is money is a terrible nuisance, but it's nice not to have to worry. Huh. And my note in the margin was in all caps. Is this whole book about money? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> A little bit. If he went to medical school, bit. he probably has a lot of debt. I don't know that he went to medical school. <laughs> I don't know that he did. I don't, I, well, I don't know that what they would have called medical school in like 1820 would be recognizable as That's medical school. That's fair enough. It's very he generous. Probably just Craig. like robbing graves or something. To... Like he just de- he decided to be a vet and then he was. Yeah. Like that's probably how he became a doctor also. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> it was enough. a different time different time but Mm -hmm. at least he does not have to worry even though he still like doesn't believe in money clearly (laughs) and that's kind of where we end up you've been on the show before so you know what i'm going to ask on the whole how has this experience with the story of dr doolittle compared to your expectations of it or your understanding of this story from your childhood craig how about you go first definitely different in the sense that i had no idea about how or why he talked to animals. And I certainly had no preconceived notions of what the adventure was going to be. Yeah. I had a fun time with the animal stuff, clearly. And the money stuff was an odd, like, you know, the things that we've been talking about. Like, I got, I found that very interesting and learning a little bit about lofting as, like, this pacifist and and animal rights guy. And then wrapping all of it in this, like, early 20th century colonial stuff was not, as fun but like intellectually interesting in terms of what we do with these stories yeah absolutely what about you andrew yeah i mean i think the the intellectually interesting thing is is the main thing like if if somebody had asked me two weeks ago what's dr doolittle about i would have said oh a guy talks to animals and if you ask me now what dr doolittle is about i'd say oh guy guy talks to animals like my my top line (laughs) like summary of the work would not change at all but if somebody is, if somebody really wants to get into it now, I, I just like it, all the, all the, like the stuff that was taken out of subsequent editions, like the fact that there are like 15 more books that deal with like the cruelty of man to other men, <laughs> like, that there's, that there's so much other like shading and, and nuance to it is, was unexpected and, and is interesting. Yeah. The fact that there's so many books, Andrew, you remind me, apparently the moon book was like when What's-His-Name got tired of uh, Sherlock Holmes. Like he was kind of getting worn out on Doolittle and he just tried to send him to the moon. He tried to blast him to space and then yeah. came back. I mean, I, I would echo what both of you have said. This was not at all what I expected it would be. Um, I think even taking out like some of these weird strains of like colonialism and socialism it's it's kind of a weirdly constructed book it doesn't make a lot of sense Mm -hmm. it it does feel like a bunch of separate stories that were thrown together and i think kids can really enjoy reading things in that format because you can just read like one or two chapters at a time and you feel like you get a really good story out of it 
but it just was not what I expected. And um, definitely an interesting reread, a different, an interesting way to kick off the year. But other than the story of Dr. <laughs> Doolittle, what have you been reading and loving? What should people be adding to their to-be-read lists heading into 2022? Andrew, how about you go first? The stuff that I've read for Overdue the most recently that's stuck with me the most, it's a little out of season now. We read it for our October like lineup of spooky books. But uh, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia did a book called Mexican Gothic, which is for the first half of it you're reading and you're like i wonder what's going on in this mysterious house with this mysterious family living up in the mountains <laughs> and then the last half of the book is just like you just they're screaming the whole time because <laughs> because the there's there's just a lot there's a lot going on in that book and i'm still thinking about it um i also read a more uh, recent one called uh, imposter syndrome by kathy wong which is like a it's like the americans meet silicon valley like there, there are spies there's like you know big tech stuff it it's kind of a lightish mystery book that i think is just really well written and does raise interesting questions about like the power of of these tech companies in all of our lives uh so yeah those, those two i enjoyed and i think i think most people would enjoy them as well cool what about you craig Similarly, most of the reading I do is for our show. So I was just kind of looking through our list of what I read recently. I enjoyed re so on the tip of like books for this show that you cover a lot. Like I read the Boxcar Children for the first time back in September. And similarly, like there, I had a top line summary of kids live in a train. And then I kind of had to dive in there and find out what was going on. And that was a fun experience. I read East of Eden for the first time last year. And I think the only Steinbeck I'd ever read prior to that was of Mice and Men. So it was interesting to read one of his bigger, more famous works. And our discussion around that was also around like it's people feel like it might be too simplistic in its allegories of like Cain and Abel. But that actually is what made it is very popular for a lot of readers over the years. So that was an interesting read. Um, so I'll, I will toss out two older books, East of Eden and The Boxcar Children very similar reads. <laughs> we covered the boxcar children probably almost two years ago now. And when I saw it pop up uh, on your list of upcoming episodes, I was like, yeah, such a weird, <laughs> such a weird revisit. it's so weird. It's like, it's not about kids making their own life in a boxcar and having independent fun. It's about children living in a very dark, scary world. It's very weird, but you have given me an excellent segue to toss it back over to you to talk a little bit about your podcast. I think we probably have a lot of overlapping listeners, but for members of the SSR community who are not aware of what you're doing with Overdue, why don't you give them a little bit of info of what they can expect from your show? Take it away, Andrew. Uh, Overdue is a podcast where every week one of us reads a book that we have never read before. That's the one like cardinal rule of the of the show is we've never read it. And then we talk to the other person about it like you would at a, you know, at a, like a it's like a party level conversation. It's not 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 a fancy or highfalutin. It's just a couple of goofballs talking about books. But we also bring like author research and contextual research. And in the last few years, we've been doing some long reads projects around stuff like the Odyssey. We're currently reading Don Quixote and just really enjoying the opportunity to like dig in a little more on a book that I don't think I ever would have read the entire thing of otherwise. <laughs> yeah, Craig, is there anything you would add to that? Just that the long reads ones are particularly fun and it's like a conversation like this one. Andrew and I don't often both read the books. It just doesn't work for the frequency of the show and stuff like that. So the long reads ones are a really fun opportunity for us to go kind of beat by beat through a story together. But a lot of our episodes are one person kind of reporting back their reading experience to someone who did not recently read it or has never read it. That kind of varies depending on what book we're covering. So hopefully that gives listeners a way in whether or not they have read the book because they can either kind of be alongside the person who is learning about the book for the first time, or they can be kind of shouting at the person who read their favorite book and has like different opinions <laughs> along the way. And I think the four, the four books that we just mentioned as, as being ones that we were still thinking about, I think that's a pretty good, uh, mm -hmm. gives mm -hmm. you a pretty good impression of like the breadth of genre that we, that we cover. <laughs> There's like a, a lot of well-known stuff, but also a lot of like newer stuff and, and things that our listeners have recommended to us. So yeah, hopefully you know, among our like 500 and something episode catalog at this point, you'll find one or two books that you're interested in. 
And I, I know that being asked to choose your favorite podcast episode puts you in the same kind of position as uh, if you were asked to pick your favorite child. Mm-hmm. But do you I mean, have, have any child, recent? So. Oh, so you do have a favorite, and I <laughs> yeah. only have one dog, so he's my favorite child. <laughs> but do you have any recent favorites that you would encourage listeners to kind of use as a starting off point if they have never listened before? We had a lot of fun for our 500th episode. We did a uh, we did the girl with the dragon tattoo, uh, mm. which I don't think either of us had ever had ever read. No. And we uh, we had streamed it like live on on YouTube. And so we had people in the audience who were there and it just ended up being a really fun time about a book that I think most people have at least like bumped into, whether you're whether it's the book itself or the or the movie. So, yeah, that, that one I thought I, I was pretty happy with how that turned out. Last summer, we did a, another collaboration episode with the Heaving Bosoms podcast, which is a romance <laughs> fiction podcast. We had a lot of fun talking about the book Moon Glow by Kristen Callahan, which is like a supernatural romance book. And they were very patient with us. Um, <laughs> and we, we, we've dipped into kind of romance and erotic fiction around, like, but we're not well-versed in it. So they were very good shepherds to us (laughs) and it was just a really rollicking like fun time so if that is a type of fiction you're interested in it is underrepresented in our catalog and that's a good episode for it great well i will include links to both of those episodes specifically in the show notes for this episode of ssr and i will also make sure that listeners have an easy way to find your entire back catalog because obviously if you love SSR, you will love Overdue. And I'm so glad that we were able to do another collaboration. We can't let this much time pass, but before our next one, this has to become a regular thing. So thank you so much for taking the time. It was great reconnecting and chatting and just digging into this very weird book with both of you. (laughs) Thank you for having (laughs) us. This is a great way to start 2022. Definitely. Happy New Year, everybody. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>